In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. I want to talk to you today about accepting joy. Accepting joy. Now, I I think that's probably hard to do in this moment, and even maybe if you're thinking, you're thinking, Scott, are you, are you paying attention? Uh, do you not know what's going on? I, I, I do know what's going on. I just want to tell you that hard moments always make good things difficult, but all the more important. And I want to suggest to you today that joy is a gift that you accept not a condition that you create. Joy is a gift that you accept, not a condition you create. So I want to talk to you about four key decisions that will change your life. Uh, uh, are you okay with that? In the first service, one person in this service, for those of you at home, no one is okay with that. I hope those of you at home are okay with that. Well, I want to tell you something first before we, we jump into the message today. I just I think this is important for you to hear and uh, from time to time, and I just want to make sure that you know um, that as your pastor, I love you. I just want you to know that. You're in the room. Those of you that made the effort to be in the room, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here physically. I, I also want to say to those of you who have been stuck at home and you have not been out of your house in a long time, and this whole thing feels so isolating and so alienating, I just want you to know, number one, I love you. Number two, this is your church, and by that I don't mean this is your building or this is your organization. I mean this is your family, and I am your pastor, and I'm honored to be your pastor. Now, I get it. Uh, I do it too. You know, on a Sunday, people will even say, I went to three services today. Great. Uh, but there's nothing like your church and your church family and your pastor, and I just want you to know that I love being your pastor, and I love you. I, I, uh, I believe with all of my heart that the reason the Lord led my family and I here is to help you share your faithfulness, your decades and generations of faithfulness and generosity as a church that are this beautiful big bucket of faithfulness and goodness, and that my job while I am here is to help you take that bucket and turn it and dump it out on the city of Wichita as an act of blessing. I, I'm 100% that I'm convinced, and, and that scores and scores, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people can be reached because of this local church. But I need you to hear something, okay? 
even if that never happens, I love you. I love you. So uh, you, you need me. I'm, I'm here for you. You can email me, scott.marshall at firstnaz.org, scott.marshall at firstnaz.org. Call the church office. I'd love to help you in any way I can, but I just need you to know I love you. Um, let me pray, and then we'll jump right into the message, okay? Lord, we need so desperately today to accept joy. It is, uh, we're tired, we're worn out, uh, we're ready for this to be over, and we need what is, comes only from your Spirit, joy. And so teach us today, by the power of your Spirit, to accept the joy that you have for us. I pray this in your name. All God's people said, amen. Well, in the series, we're learning from what has happened. And if you are here last week, I told you that Christmas is not a fairy tale. For those of you who don't know, Christmas is a historical event. Um, and that what we're doing is we're learning from things that have happened. And the Christmas story happened. Now, Stephen Sample, who was the president of the University of Southern California, not a Christian that I could tell from any of his writings, uh, he calls the Bible a super text. He says it's the kind of book that everybody ought to be aware of because it's influenced humanity, and it's the defining narrative. Even the Christmas story is the defining narrative for billions of people. And so even if you're joining us today or here in the room, you're online, and you're a person who's just kind of skeptical and you're wondering if you believe or if you don't believe, I just want to tell you that it's probably worth knowing what billions of people believe. And uh, to take the sting out of it, this is a historical record. It's not a, not a fairy tale that's made up. And maybe you don't worship at the manger like billions of other people do. But it would be important, I think, to know why so many do. And I think that would be an act of respect. Now, I, I want, as a Christian pastor, I want to understand where people who don't see the world the way that I do, don't share the faith that I have in God, I want to understand where they're coming from, and I think it's an act of respect for me to say, tell me about the stories that define you. Uh, Wichita is a melting pot, and there are multitude of ethnicities, Muslim, Hmong, Vietnamese. I mean, just uh, there's just many, many different cultures represented in Wichita. And um, I, I want to understand, out of respect, I want to understand where those folks are coming from. And, and for those of you who uh, you've run into Christians who think that respecting other people's under beliefs is not appropriate, I just want you to know that they did not get that from Jesus, and I'm sorry on their behalf. <laughs> um, but we're going to do that together. So I, I thank, you for, thank you for being here. Those of you who are, I do worship at the manger. We're all going to learn together from what happened that first Christmas on how to accept joy. Now, I think there are a couple reasons for us that it's hard for us to accept joy, and uh, at least two reasons. And the first reason is kind of makes sense because uh, how, it's this. It's how we are is so often tied to how things are. Is that true for you? You know, if things are okay, then you are okay. If things are not okay, then you are not okay. Do you resonate with that? Is it Maybe that's you. Uh, many of us struggle with that, and um, we're kind of more like a thermometer than we are a thermostat. A thermometer, you know, it, it measures the temperature. It doesn't have any ability to control the temperature. It just measures what's there. And so for many of us, we're kind of like a thermometer going through life. We're just measuring what's happening all the time. And I want to suggest to you that as we're learning to accept joy that we can become more like a thermostat. And you know what a thermostat does. Instead of measuring the temperature, the thermostat sets the temperature. It decides what the temperature is going to be. And so many of us, it's hard for us to accept joy because how we are is so often tied to how things are. The second reason I think that it's hard for many of us to accept joy is that how we think 
determines what we allow. How we think determines what we allow. So some of us think, honestly, too little of ourselves. You know, I'm, I'm too broken. This is too overwhelming. I'm too little. I'm, it's too hard. There's too much. And, and honestly, it's hard to receive something that you feel like you don't deserve. So you might look at yourself and say, you know, I'm a broken, I'm a broken vase. And how can a broken vase hold water? And so what happens that keeps you from getting to joy is that your self-talk gets in the way. And, and I just want to encourage you, and we're going to talk about how to do it, but don't let yourself, don't let you talk yourself out of what God wants to give to you. But on the flip side, there are some, the reason it's hard for you to receive joy and accept joy is that it's the opposite for you. You think too much of yourself. You know, I've been around the block. Listen, you can't tell me anything new. Uh, I've, I've seen this before. I already know that. Uh, I already got this. I know better than other people. And it's honestly hard to receive something you think you don't need. So while some people, the issue is that they feel like they're broken, for some other people, the issue is pride. And I have discovered that a proud person cannot receive joy because their cynicism gets in the way. So it can be hard to accept joy. So enter stage right of human history is Mary, the mother of Jesus. This text that we read is about Mary. And I I need to pause right here because um, I I know some of you and some of you online, uh, you grew up or your background is in the Catholic church and in Catholic understanding of the gospel. And and Mary um, has a unique, uh, there's a unique view of Mary within Catholicism. And I want to be respectful, um, but I, I just want to give some clarity. Um, the, Mary is often referred to as the Blessed Virgin or the Queen of Heaven. Some people refer to her as the Co-Redemptrix. That's a name that's given to Mary. And, and here's the idea that I have found in pastoring people who have grown up in the Catholic Church. Whether or not um, they understand you know, what the official Catholic theology is, often the, the sense that comes to a person is, um, I, you know, I was taught that Mary is like my mom, and my mom can take requests to her son. So I can't maybe in myself go to Jesus directly, and so I need to talk to Mary, who will be the intermediary between me and Jesus. And so that's what I have to do, and so I have to, I have to honor Mary in that way. And I just want to be respectful, but I want to be really, really clear um, so you can understand, because Protestants see that differently. And, and we, we say that Jesus came and removed all of the barriers between us and God. And what Jesus comes is he reveals to us that God is a warm father, and now you and I have direct access to God. Many times people grow up with the idea that, you know, I've got too much junk, and if I brought that junk to God, then God would be disappointed in me, and so if I could go through somebody else, and that's a lot of what I've found that folks that grow up Catholic. Now, listen, we want to honor Mary for her faith, um, but we don't worship or pray to Mary. Uh, Now, my Protestant friends, we need to get a little bit better at this because um, there's no problem with us honoring people for their faith. We do it all the time. John Wesley, Julian of Norwich, uh, Martin Luther, Teresa of Avila, Francis of, Assi- of Assisi. We, we, there are plenty of people throughout the history of church that we can honor for the way that they followed Jesus and learned from them, um, but we don't, we don't worship them. We don't pray to them. And so, two, I just need you to know, if you've read the story of Mary, Mary, after she receives this word, this text that we read, um, then she has this song that she sings, 
And if you've read that song that you sings and you've understood what Mary, what Mary is like, Mary was a baller. I mean, she had guts. And um, so there's a lot we can honor from Mary, but we don't worship her. We have direct access to God through Jesus. So just thought that would be helpful. Um, now, the, the text says that God sent, here it is on the screen, that God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The, virgin, the virgin's name was Mary. Now, you've got to understand, the emphasis in the text is on the nothingness of Mary. First, there's nothing in Nazareth. Nazareth was a, it was a, it was nothingsville. It was nowhere town. It was nobodyton. Nathaniel, one of the first disciples, when he heard that Jesus came from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth at all? It's just one of those kinds of places, like if you hear that someone's from there, you kind of raises a big question mark. My mom grew up in southeastern Arkansas, in Nady, Arkansas. I guarantee you have never heard of Nady, Arkansas, because it's nowheresville. Um, you go down to Little Rock, and then you go a little further south to Stuttgart, and then you go down to Gillette, and then through there to DeWitt, and then you take the uh, Titchener Blacktop Road. We all know that, right? And um, you get to Nady, Arkansas, just a few miles from the Mississippi River and the border of, uh, of Louisiana right there. My mom grew up in Nady, Arkansas. It's, it's a nowhere place. It's a it's a spot on the map. That was Nazareth. There's nothing. There's nothing there. And then there was nothing to, if you were a virgin, there was nothing to you. The, the, the process of you as a girl um, was that your family would betroth you to another family. You may not even have met the boy. You may not even like the boy. It may be the boy in your village. You're like, please don't make me marry him. And your family makes you marry him. And you have no power, no agency, no rights. And this usually happens when you're in your middle teen years. So Mary is probably 15. She's 16, somewhere in that in that neighborhood. There's nothing, there's nothing to her. And she comes from a nothing family. I mean, her, her family's line is not even mentioned. Joseph's family line is mentioned, but her family line is not even mentioned. Either she's an orphan or her family is so inconsequential that her name is not even worth mentioning. And, and there's nothing in her heart but confusion when she hears the message from the, the angel. Uh, her response is that she's greatly troubled. There's, there's nothing uh, in her heart. And then there's nothing in her womb. The, the text just emphasizes nothing, 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 nothing. And if there was anyone who had the right to curl up and be a thermometer measuring the awfulness of her life, it was Mary. Now, you got to notice, though, the contrast. Uh, the, the contrast in the text is that the nothingness of Mary meets the somethingness of God. Now you got to hear this. If anybody who is in difficult circumstances right now, Mary is your girl. Mary is the reminder that your nothing is no barrier to God's something. We so often define ourselves by our nothing, what I don't have, or what I used to have, or what I lost. We argue for our nothing, and the good news, the gospel, is that God's something shows up in a world of nothing. And so here's this angel who comes to Mary in verse 29 and says to her, Greetings, Mary, you're highly favored. And Mary's troubled. And the angel then proceeds to tell her she's going to have this baby and that he's going to be great and he's the son of the Most High. And, and Mary says, well, how's this going to be? I'm a virgin. I know how things work. It doesn't work that way. And the angel proceeds to reach back to creation like the spirit was hovering over the chaos and spoke to the chaos and something came out of nothing in the same way God would 
put a baby in Mary's womb. Now, now I know this is, this is a key uh, doctrine of the Christian church is the virgin birth of Jesus. But if, if you can get your head around the fact that God could create out of nothing, you could probably get your head around how God could put a baby into the womb of a girl. And then Mary has this very powerful response that we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. She has what I would say is the definition of faith. She says, you know, in the original language, it says, look, look, or behold, or yeah, I see. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Or some translations say, let it be to me according to your word. I, I think her response is the definition of faith. She, she doesn't have any data. All she has is her faith. Now, because you and I might say, well, I, I could not do that. I could not respond with that kind of faith. And I just want to suggest to you that you do this all the time. Your boss comes to you and says, hey, if you will do this, this, and this, then you will get a raise. You're taking your boss's words, just words, as facts that you then base your actions on. Or if you're a parent, your parent says to you, you know, do this and I won't ground you, and you just take their words at you know, face value, you have no data to say that this may or may not happen. Or, or if you're a coach, uh, your coach says, hey, do this and this and eat this way and exercise this way and you'll get better. We do this all the time. We place confidence in what someone says before it's a reality. Humans are, we're just by nature, we're people of faith. We can't help it. And, and Mary doesn't just make this kind of uh, like acquiescence to what the angel says. It's not like she says, okay, fine. Mary makes this powerful resolve. She makes this fundamental decision, and she says, may your word to me be fulfilled. The, the, the tense of the language right there is that she made the decision, and she wasn't going back from the decision. Psychologists would call this a fundamental choice. Do you know what a fundamental choice is? You're going to, in just a few days, it's going to be 2021, hallelujah, and it's going to be 2021, and then it's going to be the new year, and what do we do at the new year? Every year, right? We make New Year's what? Resolutions, right? Like, and, and we say things like, ah, you know, I know it's been COVID-19, but I put on the COVID-19, and I'm going to take off the, I, I promise, at the first of the year, I'm going to stop eating all the cookies, and I'm going to get rid of the COVID-19, Right? We make a resolution, but you, we usually know, I mean, there's a, such a small percentage of people who follow through on that. We usually know we're just talking. But when you make a fundamental decision, what you do is you say, you know what, my health is so important that I'm going to prioritize it above everything. This, psychologists call it a fundamental choice. It's a, it's a bedrock decision. It's a defining moment. It's an anchor point. You, you know, if you have a truck, you have built in to the bed of the truck, these anchor points. And you always know where you can go to tie down your load. And this is the kind of decision that Mary made. She made an anchor point, fundamental choice. May it be to me according to your word. When I was a high school senior, after I graduated high school, I was getting ready to go to college and, and uh, had, had that all mapped out. But I went to summer camp. It was teen summer camp. And uh, we had a speaker there at summer camp who was talking to us about our relationship with God. And I remember one night, I don't remember what night of the camp it was, I was sitting on the front row and I was sitting next to two of my dearest friends 
um, who one became the best man in my wedding. The other, Dr. Scott Dooley, was my roommate all the way through college. And uh, that night, that, that speaker stood up and he, he called us to make a fundamental choice. And I still remember the words, he, he was quoting Winston Churchill, who said, never, no, never, no, never give up. And he said, listen, I want, you, I want you students, I want you to make an anchor point decision in your life that you will always go back to for the rest of your life. I want you to give your entire life to God, and I want you to decide, I'm never going to give up. Like the old school language for that would be, would be, you'd be sanctified, you know. And so I remember, it was very unemotional. He didn't call for a big emotional song for you to come down, but there was a, an altar like there is here, and and we were sitting there, and, and he said, if you're serious about making this kind of a decision, I want you to get up right now and kneel down at this altar and make that decision before God. And m- my friends and I looked at each other, and we just collectively got up, and we, we kneeled down, and we made that decision. I, I cannot tell you the number of times in my life when I have wanted to quit, and everybody in their life at points wants to quit. I have gone back to where I tied on my faith to that anchor point and said, no, I decided back there with God's help that I was never going to give up. I'm not going to quit. I made a fundamental choice. This is the kind of decision that Mary made. She made a fundamental choice. May it be to me according to your word. I'm making up my mind right now. This is a fundamental choice. So I think out of this story, I think there are four key decisions that you and I need to make that can change our lives, some defining moments. Two of the decisions are for you. Two of the decisions are for us. And I need you to hear this uh, as we're thinking about these decisions. Anytime we respond to God, it is always a response to what God has already done. We're not responding to God to earn God's favor. We're responding because God has already given us his favor in Jesus. And so anything we ever do is always a response to God. So we're simply responding to God. But here's, here's the two decisions that, that I think can change the course of your life for you. Decision number one, resolve that you'll always respond to God. Just decide. I'm always going to respond to God. Now here's, here's the reality when you read any of the stories in the Bible, including the Christmas story, um, the characters in the stories are not the heroes. They're not the people whose faith we're supposed to be imitating. Before you say, wait a second, what are you talking about? Well, the hero in the Bible is Jesus. The rest of us are all people. And all those people there are examples of how people respond to God. Some do it well, some don't do it so well. And there are multiple ways to respond out of a multitude of life circumstances. The Christmas story illustrates that. The wise men could have decided after they saw the star, they could have said, wow, that was interesting, and then just gone about their business and never sought out where the star went. Mary could have have laughed the next day. She could have gotten up and said, man, I really ate something really weird. I'm just going to go about my little life here in Nazareth and nothing's ever going to change. There's destiny in your response. Decide, make an anchor point that you're always going to respond to God. You're never going to just slough it off. And then the second decision is tied right into it. It's that you're going to decide that your response is always going to be yes. You're always going to say yes. The gospel is that God picks you and that your nothing isn't a barrier to God's something. And so you say yes to God's future for your life. It might be a difficult yes and you might wrestle with God about it. Like Jacob did, you wrestle with God. 
But in the end, you're like, I've already pre-decided that I am always going to say yes. I, I, I may not like it. I may be difficult for me. But I've decided, I pre-made the choice that I am always going to say yes. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ahead and make up your mind that that's how it's going to go for you right now. Anchor your future to that point. Then there are two decisions that I think that we need to make based off of this story, and I think there are implications of this text. Here's the first one. You and I, together, Wichita First Church. We need to make the decision that because God always picks the people that everyone ignores, we are too. Because God always picks the people that everyone ignores, we are too. It's, it's a non-negotiable for a follower of Jesus. Please, do not let your politics decide who you welcome. If you're a Christian and you let your politics decide who you are welcome, you are committing idolatry. Repent. We go to the scriptures, we go to the life of Jesus, and we do whatever it says because we are obedient to Jesus Christ. So it's a non-negotiable for the followers of Jesus that we're all, Jesus, God picked the people that everybody ignores, and so we do too. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 25 that when we are judged, That God will ask, you know, I was, I was naked and you clothed me and I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you brought me something to drink. And, and the people who have been following Jesus will say, when did, we don't remember doing that. What, what, do, you, what do you mean? And, and Jesus says, God will respond, well, whenever you did it to the least of these, you were doing it to me. So, because that's what, that's what God's after, and we're just going to decide right now that's what we're always going to do. We're part of a tribe of churches uh, called the Church of the Nazarenes, a global tribe in hundreds of, or 150 plus world areas. And uh, maybe you've never heard the story of how that, our tribe of churches started. I, it's one of my favorite stories. You have to reach back a few years to understand it. Um, in the late 1700s, there was an Anglican minister by the name of John Wesley. In his day, he was the, the most well-known man in his country, wrote. And um, he was an Anglican minister, and, and he looked around the churches. And at that day, what happened is if you were wealthy, as, you would, as a way of supporting the church, you would buy your pew. So you would be yours, and your family would sit there, and no one was supposed to sit there. And, and it, I don't think it was an intentional thing. I don't think anybody meant anything bad by it, but the... the unintentional result of that is that if you didn't have money, you eventually weren't welcome. And John Wesley looked around and he said, he looked at the ministry of Jesus and Jesus was from Nazareth and Jesus always prioritized the least of these. And he said, I, I think we're not doing that right. And in that day, ministers and churches were pretty territorial and they had their parish, which was defined by a, a geographical area. And, and they would kind of be like, don't poach people from my parish. Those are my people. It's my, stop. And so John Wesley said, but the message of Jesus is for everybody. And so he would go um, in graveyards and outside bars and on his horse. And he would, he would just preach the good news of Jesus anywhere. Because he said, you know, I think the, it's supposed to be for ministers that the world is our parish. And out of his, out of his, uh, his zeal for following Jesus and living a holy life, the, the Methodist church started out of that and came to the United States. And Fast forward 100 or so years and you have a guy named Phineas F. Brzee who's a bishop in the Church of the Nazarene in Los Angeles, California. 
And the same thing that happened for the churches in John Wesley's day, it happened in Los Angeles, the Methodist church, and it was the same kind of story. The wealthy were welcome and the poor were excluded. And, and Phineas F. Brzee just became more and more uncomfortable. He had a lot invested. He had a lot to lose. And one of his friends was the president of the University of Southern California, J.P. Whitney was his name. And, and they realized, we, we, we have to get back to what Jesus was about and we have to do this differently because we're not doing this right. And so one night they, they prayed all night long and they said, what should we call this group of people who are after Jesus and are always going to pick the people that Jesus, what, what should we call them? And, and as they prayed that night, J.P. Whitney said, you know what? Jesus was from Nazareth, the place where nobody mattered. So we should be the church of the Nazarene. We should, we should do that. Because we should always prioritize the people that everybody else looks over. And Phineas Everstee said, that's it. So people took that seriously in the early 1900s. I mean, you've got to understand the cultural context uh, that many of the things that you and I in our culture today, people just you know, say, ah, no big deal. In that day was a source of deep shame and could get you kicked out of your family, out of your church. And one of those things was if you were a girl and you got pregnant out of wedlock. You know, today that seems in our culture is almost nothing. In that day, it was a big deal. It was a source of great shame. So those people, the Church of the Nazarene, in the early 1900s, they, uh, they started a, um, what they called a rest cottage. I got a picture of it on the screen for you from the early 1900s. Now again, you got to understand the cultural context of this. And they said to girls who got pregnant um, with no husband, they said, hey, if you, you want a place to come where we're not going to shame you and we're not going to uh, make you feel terrible, we're going to actually help you. We'll help you raise your baby. And if you need to adopt the baby, we'll help do that. But we'll, we'll provide... They started in the early 1900s as an expression of the Church of the Nazarene, the people who are like the Nazarene Jesus. This rest cottage. Because <laughs> they just said, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and make up our mind that we're just going to always choose the people that God chooses. And, and I've, I've, we've talked about this before, and, and I've said to you, what if we could do that for 10% of Wichita? We just beat the place that we just pick and we just say, we're going we're gonna to choose the people that God chooses. We're just always going to do it. When we, when we don't know what else to do, we get a little bit confused and we're going to just always go back to that. We're always going to pick those people. Let's just go ahead and make up our mind that that's what we're going to do and that's our future. Second decision you and I need to make is this, is that we're just always going to go with grace. I think that the Christmas story, specifically Mary, is a test for every local church. Because if Mary, if she walked in with her story to the back of Wichita First Church and word got out how, what her condition was and her, how would we respond? I think that's a test for every local church. And, and, and I think local churches over time have this kind of creep where they Maybe they don't mean it, but they subtly communicate, listen, hey, you're, you're welcome here, but just kind of once you get your stuff together, we don't really want to deal with your mess. And it's not, I don't know anybody, anybody overtly says that but as much as it just gets communicated. And, and the Marys of the world pick up, ah, I'm not really welcome there. And I just want to tell you, the local church, we're on the welcoming committee not the finishing committee. You know, I mean, God loves people the way they are and leaves them, loves them too much to leave them there, but, 
And we'll help on the back end, but we're the ones that welcome people. We're the welcome committee. And, and we have to decide that we're just going to always lead with grace. That's just, we've just pre-decided, already our choice, run into a situation we don't know what to do about, we encountered, and we're not sure how to treat the person. Oh, you know what? We already decided that we're going to treat them with grace. We just already made that decision. It's done. Don't have to wonder. And what that does, and this is a word that you can do with what you want, as I've been praying and thinking about our church and the future of our church, uh, a word that feels from the Holy Spirit, you do what you want with this. I think what that does when a church leads with grace is it allows us to have fresh connections. You could reach all the way back to the Old Testament to the prophet Ezekiel who wrote down these visions, these times of prayer he had with with God and in Ezekiel chapter 37 the Lord takes him to this great valley and it's it's full of dry bones what used to be an army and the Lord says to Ezekiel standing looking over this valley of dry bones he says can these bones live O son of man and now Ezekiel knows who he's talking to so he says oh Lord you alone know So then the Lord says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones, son of man. Tell them that my spirit is going to come into them again. And as Ezekiel prophesies, makes this prophecy, there are fresh connections. The sinews between the bones take place first. And you know, it's the ligaments. It's It's the connective tissue that allows the bone to move. And, and I've, I've said this to you, and I'm going to say this to you more. It's, I'm not going to let up on this. It's what if we could be that grace place for 1% of Wichita? Man, people, people long for grace, thirst for it. Nobody's looking for a place where someone will condemn them. Nobody. Not you, not me, not anybody you know. Now, for those of you who are worried, you're like, well, you're going to be soft on Jesus. You know, yeah, Jesus was full of invitation to people and also in tremendous amounts of challenge for people. But you understand, right, that the people that Jesus had words of judgment and challenge for, that in the end, he died for them too, right? You can understand that. So let's just go ahead and just get it out of the way. Let's just decide right now. Let's anchor our future to that point. We, we know now where we're going to tie our loads. And we're going to be the church that we just always prioritize the people that everybody else ignores. And we always lead with grace. Now, you need to do something with this. Um, you can't walk out of here and not do something with this. And so here's what I'd like to invite you to do. I'm going to pray for you in a minute. But you need to, when you, make a, when you make a fundamental choice, when you, like Mary, say, oh, look, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. I've, I've fundamentally, you need to make a you need, you need to signify that. And so when we're done here in a minute, I'm going to give you the blessing. Uh, I'm not trying to twist your arm. You have to, this has to be between you and God. You're first going to be the kind of person who says, I'm always going to respond to God. And, and when God comes to me, I'm always, I may wrestle, but I'm always in the end going to say yes. I've pre-decided. 
And then I'm always going to be a part of a church that prioritizes the people that everybody else ignores. And I'm always going to be part of a church where we treat people with grace, no matter what. And if you make, you've made that decision, what I want you to do is there's these bracelets here. I talked to you a few weeks ago from Philippians chapter 3 about the Apostle Paul saying that he hasn't obtained it all yet, but he's pressing on. He's not quitting. It's Paul's version of saying, I'm in it to win it. And it says, in it to win it, Philippians 3.14. And I've been wearing it. And I want you to come up here and I want you to get it. I want you to put it on and wear it in public. Because you're serious. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go that way. So let me pray for you, and then we'll respond. We invite you to stand with me if you're in the room. Lord, thank you for Mary. Thank you for her simple faith. If, uh, of all the people, of all the people in human history who could just have curled up in a ball and said, I give up, it could have been her. But she saw that her nothingness was no competition whatsoever for who you are. And so God, some of us are here today, we, we're, all we're feeling is the nothing. That's all we're feeling. Lord, help us to see like Mary saw, that it's, it's not our nothing, it's your something, and we can cling to that. But the good news is that your something comes into the middle of our nothing. And God, we want to make this decision. We want to always decide that we will always respond to you. And that we want to decide right now that when you, when you push us, when you press us, when you nudge us, we're always going to say yes. We'll have made that decision forever. And then, Lord, we want to make the decision as a church that we will always prioritize the people that everybody else ignores because you did. And we will always be the kind of church that treats people with grace. We've, we've pre-decided. And so, God, as we do that, this beautiful, beautiful church that for generations has made a difference in this city, oh, would you take that commitment and that faithfulness and that generosity, would you pour it out on the city of Wichita in your name, Jesus? Make something beautiful again, a church in the center of the city that loves the city, a church in the center of the city that has a heart for the city, a church in the center of the city that serves the whole city, person after person after person after person, finds you and finds hope because of this church. Oh God, do it again. Do it again. So we commit ourselves to you now, knowing you've already committed yourself to us. And we pray this in your name and all God's people said.